0: Time so now to talk global politics and glad to be joined as always by Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. Good to see you today. I suppose uh, globally the big show in town is uh, COP28. Um, you're posing the question though, can a climate summit in an oil-rich uh, petro-state actually change anything, Thomas. It's yeah. an interesting debate. So that, it is. It?
1: It's a particularly interesting debate. And it's look, the location of this was always going to be contentious. I mean, the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, is a petro-state, which is the name given to a country that makes its revenues from oil and gas. Uh, and it is one of the largest petro-states on the planet. Its an economy practically revolves around oil and gas. So the fact that... COP was located here in the first place seems a little bit bizarre in certain respects. But I suppose there is uh, an acknowledgement that these countries need to shift production away. They need to diversify their economies. And maybe by holding such events here, it will help to spur the investment and encourage, encourage different forms of investment. But certainly, that's not the way it has been received so far. We had that diplomatic spat between president our own for, uh, former president mayor robinson and sultan al jaber who is the head of the cop summit uh, mm. in dubai a really nasty exchange of uh, exchange of words between them exchange of opinions which left many people wondering i mean what is dubai's game here what, what, what exactly
0: he, he declared to the best of my knowledge there was no science behind the call to urgently phase out fossil fuels which like You'd imagine it's incredible that he would say that. It's
1: remarkable, given that there is overwhelming scientific evidence to the contrary. uh, Of course,
0: he's head of the UAA National Oil Company, isn't he? Yeah,
1: he's he's head of the oil company as well. So he has, you know, he has a stake in it. Uh, But it is, it was a remarkable series of developments. Now... As for the COP in general, how much can it achieve, you know, what whether it's targets, a lot have been made of these uh, nationally de- determined contributions, the contributions of member states to a kind of a loss and damage fund for poorer countries on the front line experiencing climate change. The Taoiseach was out on Saturday. He committed, I think, was £25, 25 million, million, yeah. uh, over 2024 and 2025. So uh, not, an,
0: not an insignificant sum of money. No, but is that not just shifting funds around? Because what is it 250 million or something that we we're, were given entirely but of he's only taking the money from that fund, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the, it's just shifting monies around.
1: Really, it, you know? it really is, and it really we have to question, I suppose, uh, the legitimacy of our of our contributions as well as that of other countries. Yeah. Uh The main diplomatic actors at this: the lights of the United States, the lights of China. A lot of them, I suppose, the focus the war in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine as well, but the war in Gaza has. Distracted, maybe some of the focus from the COP summit, and I think uh, leaders will be kind of frustrated in that regard. But they're still making the efforts to get there. You know, you had King Charles there. The other day, Rishi Sunak yeah. is set to arrive. Uh, I think Emmanuel Macron was out there.
0: So they're all going to be there. They're all going you to be... Do not find that hypocritical? Particularly where King Charles is concerned, and indeed uh, Mr Sunak uh, as well, because um, UK are still funding exploration of yeah, oil and gas. Yeah,
1: they still... You know? and, and it's a little bit... It, it it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to believe, really, because they are exploring gas yes. fields out in the North Sea there, off the coast, off the places like Newcastle, uh, and places like that. So it, it it does strike you as a little bit peculiar, Rishi Sunak, coming out. I suppose there has to be a balance here, but the big question is, and this is a question being posed at COP by by diplomats and all attendees, do we phase out fossil fuels? Do we phase them out gradually? Or do we just phase them down, as in, do we reduce the scale of production and keep a certain level of fossil fuels Obviously, the lights of Dubai, the lights of those petro-states would want to see uh, a continued usage of fossil fuels and they genuinely believe that that can be married mm. with renewable energy and renewable technologies. But the rest of the world has said, no, look, we need to cut this out. We need, to, we need to
0: cut out these... And can that be done? I mean, renewables, could they take over from fossil fuels? Are are we at that point? Though? I don't think we're there yet. I think, I, I, there, I, think I think,
1: you know, we talk about things like the 1.5 degree limit... There's been a lot of talk about that, about preventing the heating of the planet by 1.5 degrees. I've heard different arguments. I've heard kind of slightly more innovative arguments which say that, you know, 1.5 degrees is a threshold we cannot meet now. And we should put our energy into climate adaptation, other methods. Things like, there's one fascinating technology, solar geoengineering, which I think involves heating up particles in the atmosphere uh, and using them to reflect the rays of the sun elsewhere. So there are innovative solutions Very to interesting.
0: This. So this is the sort of technological uh, answers to the 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 issue, is that? Precisely.
1: Precisely. The adaptations that the world can make, and obviously this will have to be done in conjunction with a major reduction in fossil fuel use. Uh, Obviously countries will still have to up their renewable energy targets. But there are certain types of science and technologies that are coming on board, coming on stream, that could help to alleviate the situation. And I think if more money is invested in them, well, we may get a little bit of benefit out of them. So right. it's, it's, it's a long-term game, though,
0: Fran. Interesting. The last COP, I suppose, we got them to deal with the inequality um, due to, to climate yeah. change. What, what will emerge from this as the big... As the biggie, or do we know that yet? I'm
1: France? not entirely sure yeah. i think I think there is still a lot of uh, a lot of frustration amongst poor developing countries on the front line with how climate change is being handled on a global scale. I think there is an awful lot of frustration there between the leaders of those countries. They see themselves as vulnerable as being targeted they're the ones suffering the brunt mm. of the climate destruction that is currently unfolding. And it's a really difficult
0: one to square. It's, a, it's going to be interesting to see what emerges as, as the main topics out of that. Uh, Netanyahu has he finally got uh, a nemesis that could have opposed him? He has a way?
1: challenger in his midst. He has a challenger in his midst. His name is Benny Gantz. So he's A former security minister, he's a member of the War Cabinet uh, and he is a prominent politician in Israel. He was part of the government prior to Netanyahu re-entering office this term around. Uh, But it is very interesting because he seems to be emerging now, emerging as maybe the figure who can potentially replace Benjamin Netanyahu. I was looking up some of the statistics and obviously they have to be treated with a grain of salt but 76% of people say they want Netanyahu out of office sooner or later. I I
0: found that incredible. Is that really based around the breach of security that resulted in that terrorist attack on Israel? Is it? I think it is because
1: look, prior to this whole thing kicking off Netanyahu was engaged in a series of controversial judicial reforms. Forms the, the whole country was uh, was going apoplectic. It, w- it was dividing society in Israel. Then you had this the 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 Hamas invasion, uh, the absolute. Terrifying scenes which emerged there, and Netanyahu was held culpable because he ultimately was the man in charge. The book stops with him, and it was a catastrophic security failure. Many Israelis still blaming Netanyahu for that. Many Israelis still looking at his performance since then and saying that it just hasn't been good enough. I mean, we still have. We it's fantastic that we've uh, secured the release of you know so many hostages, mm. but there are still hostages trapped in Gaza. There are still hostages under the command of Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, which have yet to be retrieved. So there is a lot of disquiet, a lot of disharmony between his
0: population. But is it very unlikely that he'd be ousted until the war is finished.
1: Yeah, I way, think in that? the short term his position is relatively safe. I think there is an acknowledgement now from everybody across the Israeli political spectrum that they need some some degree of stability to keep them going throughout the war. And I think Netanyahu staying in office, uh, I think his position is probably relatively safe for the time being, it doesn't seem to have yielded any change in his tactics. We see, just as the truce ends, Israel has gone back to the bombardment of the Palestinian territory of the Gaza Strip. So you know their actions, their war strategy hasn't changed all that much. I suspect it wouldn't change all that much under a figure like Benny Gantz either. He would probably maintain the same, the same line, the same all-out strategy. But he would perhaps be a different, a different persona, a man with a bit of. He's a man with a bit of charisma. Uh, yeah. a
0: man How would the Americans view him? Do you think? Where, where does he stand on the political spectrum? Because I mean, if we see Netanyahu as, as a right-wing politician, as a right-wing, Gantz is
1: more towards the centre of the political yeah. spectrum. Yeah. So he's a little bit more moderate in some of his aims. He's a former general, though. Uh, so he has a military oh, right. backing. Okay. He, so be he's a hawk to
0: some. some a hawk as well. to some. Yeah. That
1: would be an excellent way to describe him. Yeah. yeah. So he's a former general and would have a military backing. Would have a military knowledge, uh, and therefore would probably invest heavily in the military and in the military tactics uh, against uh, against Gaza. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. A behind the scenes opposition. Figures from a dozen parties. They're lobbying lawmakers from Netanyahu's party saying they would back a no confidence vote. That doesn't seem, it doesn't look like they will get enough. It's a bit like the vote in Helen McEntee here. Mm. They simply don't have the numbers to force Netanyahu out of office immediately, but it is something that may come in time. Look, it's a really. It's, it's an intriguing political situation because Netanyahu, Netanyahu is in... He's in the midst of a storm here. He, he's trying to guide his country to a, through a wartime scenario. He's fighting with his own domestic uh, uh, mm. partners at home. His popularity is sliding it would be very interesting to see.
0: And uh, the relationship with America is becoming very difficult because Israel is just not listening. I mean, we see now they're bombing southern Gaza with the same intensity that we saw in the north.
1: Yeah, that has emerged last night and we see the casualty figures slowly climbing up and every time I look at them I wince because it really just... It's reinforcing, it's reinforcing this kind of, this pattern of violence that Israel seems to have engaged in. And look, we're not justifying any of Hamas's actions, but it has to be said, the Israeli, Israeli actions cannot really be helping this situation. When you see the scenes of horror and destruction from Gaza, is that doing anything but radicalising further yes,
0: citizens in Gaza? It's most unfortunate indeed. Now, uh, we ask you to look at a political figure for us uh, every single week, and I suppose... Uh, People might guess who it's going to be this week because Henry Kissinger passed away at the age of 100 last week. Um, Looking into his career... And, and God knows his career was a long one. What, what did you make of the man, uh, Thomas?
1: Yeah, he's a man we could well do with now to solve this Israeli uh, Gaza crisis. He's he's a figure like the one that would you know would be able to play a mediating role there. But he had a fascinating life. He really mm. did. He was born in born in Bavaria, and apparently he never quite lost the Bavarian accent, according to mm. to anecdotes. But he went on to forge a, a remarkable career in the United States. Diplomatic ranks as a, di- a diplomat uh, serving overseas, serving in very under various. Mm-hmm presidents, gave counsel to various presidents from JFK all the way up to President Joe Biden. So he has been there a long time and you know he he was quite active even up until the the, the few weeks, the few months before his death. He would regularly he was with China in the summer, Mm. he paid a visit to Xi Jinping. Of course he
0: was well loved in China. He
1: was well loved in China for his policies there. But he he's come under fierce controversy as well it's not to shy away from the controversies his policy in respect of Cambodia and the Vietnamese war very controversial Mm. resulted in in thousands of killings, in 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 mass murder, essentially in certain parts of the world, mm. he was always a staunch defender of those politi- po- policies.
0: Yes, because uh, he was so anti-communism, I suppose. He was so, so anti-communism. He defended communism. that, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that coloured his his approach to diplomacy in many ways. But you know, you've heard figures like Tony Blair coming out and describing him as an artist of diplomacy. Kissinger was motivated by a genuine love of the free world and the need to protect it. And I think that is a sincere statement. I think that is true. I think he really was motivated by uh, a sincere mm.
0: love of the democratic world. I his own his own excuse when he was confronted by the critique, Thomas, was that he was pragmatic. You know, he's,
1: yeah, you know. and he he was a practical man, yeah. and that was in part why he was so successful uh, because he was willing to take on these crises, take on these problems, and just try and go and solve them in a pragmatic manner. Uh, Now, it could be seen as ruthless. It could be seen as kind of callous and emotionless. But that was just the way he decided to operate his foreign policy. Uh, And he had an influence. He has had an influence on subsequent administrations, subsequent U.S. presidents. He's had a a prevailing influence over, over many political figures in the United States and abroad. We mentioned his relationship with China there uh, flew to Beijing this July to have a meeting with Xi Jinping despite a chill in relations between the US, between the White House and Beijing. So, you know, that visit mm-hmm. irked the White House, but he wasn't afraid of it. Uh, Kissinger was was determined to get there and uh, he wasn't going to let it go by any yes. means.
0: So I, I suppose it was the relationship with Nixon that was... You defining, know, the defining, wasn't it? Yeah, it,
1: it yeah. really was, and it, it was—it was a relationship that, you know, was was rocky at times. But yeah. even so, he worked very closely with the Nixon administration and worked very closely. And I suppose it coincided with the major policy events of those times: the Vietnam crisis, the yeah. war in Cambodia, and in parts of East Asia. So you had various, multiple international crises unfolding at that time and he worked with the Nixon administration to to try and resolve them. Now, people can judge for themselves whether he was successful or not. He certainly had a huge influence over the US and its policies towards them
0: mm. uh, but during as, that era. As you say, I mean, what a career from... You know, fleeing Nazi Germany right up yeah. to to the very end and, and, and then, uh, you know, living to 100 years old.
1: Yeah, a remarkable, a really, yeah. a, an outstanding character. I'd encourage people to read about him because I was reading a bit about him. There's a lot I didn't know about him, a lot of kind of small things, anecdotes. He was quite yeah. a funny man. I mentioned charisma earlier, Benny Gantz had charisma. Henry Kissinger had charisma and I think he had a bit of political charisma, he could have survived as an elected politician. I could see him having taken that path. Now, he didn't. He decided to go down the diplomatic route, which is kind of a different course. But he had that element of political charisma, that personality mm. that people kind of warmed to him. And he, and he kind was of, very bright. Was he an academic originally? He was, was an he? academic yeah. and yeah. a Harvard-educated academic yeah. and taught mm. in Harvard, I think, for a period of time as well. So an extremely bright individual, an extremely talented individual. And, you know, the world will, be, the world will miss him. In, in a world which is increasingly divided by bitter conflicts and dispute, we need more Henry Kissingers around.
0: Well, be careful what you wish for. Um, uh-huh. in, in, in terms of looking forward to the week ahead then, what should we look out for, Thomas?
1: Yeah, there's a number of things really. Carlos Puigdemont, people mm. may remember him. He's the, He was the leader of of the failed Catalan independence referendum they've re- recently been brought back into relevance because they're leaning, they're giving support to PM Pedro Sanchez in Spain now he is has Is still exiled though? Is he, he is still, still exiled and that is part of the bargain deal that he will get an amnesty in return uh, ah. for his support but he has threatened to to pull out he is threatened he's threatened to pull the strings on Pedro Sanchez so Sanchez feeling the heat there it's a really interesting situation because the Catalan independence movement you know is highly controversial in Spain. It hasn't faded off the political agenda somewhat, and Puigdemont is still the man at the centre of it all. I mentioned I saw him talk in Trinity once before. He's an intriguing character to watch. Uh, he, makes a, he makes a compelling argument, even if it's one that I don't really agree with, uh, but certainly he is putting his pressure on Pedro Sanchez to, uh, to give him as much support and to give him that amnesty. As well as that, the story of Rishi Sunak and the Tory party, they're at war over immigration. And this is quickly becoming emerging as a theme of Rishi Sunak's premiership. Uh, this this war over immigration, this war over boats to Rwanda, it's really, uh, it's really riled up people on both sides of the political divide in the UK. It remains to be seen how he will, will he be able to force his policies through? What exactly is going to happen? They were struck down by the Supreme Court yeah. uh, last month. But he seems intent on getting some form of of policy through and deporting some uh, to some Rwanda. To Rwanda. So that's yeah.
0: still there as a possibility. That's isn't? still there as an open possibility. Right. Okay. Even even though the courts have decided otherwise.
1: Even though the courts have decided otherwise. So it's a really. Yeah, it's an intriguing uh, situation from soon it after It is from. because
0: you'd wonder what precedent that would set. if yeah, they ignored precisely,
1: it. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Uh, NATO? Finally, the next big NATO boss should come from a big defence spender. This is the the viewpoint of a Latvian hopeful. Her name is Christa, or Christianis Karins, his name is. And he is a potential future head of NATO. Now, we've heard a couple of names floated around for this gig. Ursula von der Leyen being one of them. Uh, there are a number of others there I think von der Leyen is kind of the favourite but this guy Christianis Karins, comes from Latvia who con- which contributes a significant amount of money to NATO uh, in contrast to other countries. you know, We're familiar with countries not spending their allocation on, on NATO membership, on, on military hardware and such. Latvia is a country which actually does, and I suppose that's half because it's a Baltic state. It's on kind of a front line against Russia there, so it is very cognizant and very alert with security matters. But this guy, Christianis Kariņs, he could be a future head of NATO. He could replace Jens Stoltenberg,
0: as leader so he's one to watch. Be interesting. Von der Leyen is that damaged, is she um for for that role by what she said about Israel, you know. Yeah, it, it, it would Israel. have
1: it certainly it certainly has tainted her reputation yeah. somewhat. I think she like to be honest I think she's played a stormer right up until that point. Uh it was a bad error of judgment though, just bad because the optics of it mm. looked extremely poor for for mm. the general population and her her, her reputation is certainly tainted by it. It will probably hurt her prospects of getting the job. She could, of course, stand for another term though, as European Commission President. So that is open to her as well. So we just don't know yet. She's a hard worker. She clearly likes her role, but she's not immune to making mistakes, as as that whole saga illustrated.
0: All right, Thomas, always good to see you. Thanks Pleasure, much, Fran, uh, thank indeed. you. Indeed, Thomas Conway with us, as usual, on a Monday, having a look at all things global. Uh, news and information is coming up.